Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith and review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Father Finney is with us this evening. I ask you, Father Finney, please come forward to begin in prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your gift of life and love that we have received through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We thank you for calling all of us here tonight. And our speaker, Father Scalia, we ask you to send forth your Spirit to fill our minds with your truth and help us carry our cross and to follow your Son, Jesus Christ, the truth. We ask this in his name. Amen. amen. Hail Mary. Full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. the heart of Mary. Pray for us. Many hope. Pray for us. And the Father and Son. Thank you, Father. Our speaker tonight, Father Paul Scalia, is the pastor of St. John the Beloved Catholic Church in McLean, Virginia. He received a Master of Arts degree from the Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas, the Angelicum, in Rome in 1996 and was ordained a priest for the Diocese of Arlington the same year. Father Scalia has published articles in various periodicals, including This Rock, First Things, and Human Life Review, and is the founder, editor, and publisher of the Fenwick Review. But more impressive than all of those is that Father Scalia is a regular speaker at the Institute of Catholic Culture. And is a member of our board of advisors. Thank you, Sabatino. Got a little nervous when he said, but most importantly. <laughs> Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. There it is, the the one that started it all. <laughs> the account of the first sin, called original sin. Original, uh, not just because it's the first, but because it sets the pattern for all others. And this evening, I would like to use this painful event, the very beginning of, of humanity, painful events, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, to consider the issues of technology. 
First, it's important to understand the purpose of the tree in the garden and our corresponding need for a tree. Why did God place the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden? From our point of view, it represents perhaps just a temptation. I mean, after all, if he didn't want them to eat of it, why did he put it there? Right? Uh, parents, you, you, you probably, you know, wouldn't put like a, you know, a bowl of, of chocolates on the kitchen table and said, don't eat them, okay? Why did he do this? Well, the, the catechism provides a very simple and, and the traditional answer to this. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolically evokes the insurmountable limit, limits that man, being a creature, must freely recognize and respect with trust. Man is dependent on his creator and subject to the laws of creation and to the moral norms that govern the use of freedom. And so the tree was placed there to remind man of the limits of his autonomy. It was to remind him that he does not have full power, that his nature is limited, and he has to recognize these limits and respect them with trust. And we need to understand also the progression of the fall in this account. First, notice that it involves a promise. You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There is a promise. You will be like God. There's a lie involved in what he says as well. But there's this promise. That's the hook. Notice that the temptation also involves a desire, an inordinate desire, for knowledge and for power. And notice that it comes by way, in part at least, by way of the eyes. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, it was nice to look at. So there's this temptation via the eyes, provoking a desire for knowledge, a desire for power, and then that leads to the sin. And what happens is, in the very grasping for the fruit of the tree, in the very grasping for what they think is going to make them better, they become lesser. At the moment they reach for what they think will increase them, they decrease. And this is the pattern of sin that, that I would like to focus on and apply to the issue of technology this evening. So first, to go into a little more detail, the promise. Adam and Eve grasped for what they thought would make them greater than they were. When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. This is the promise. You will be greater than you are. You will have more than you have right now. You will not have to sort of observe the limits that you have now. You can sort of transcend yourselves. And then the temptation via the eyes, and that excites the, the, the desire for knowledge and power. And knowledge uh, not indicating just sort of knowing something, like knowing facts, but it implies a certain domination. And when they reach upwards, they lower themselves. As soon as they had the fruit in their hands, 
they found to their dismay and to ours that they had by the very act of reaching for the fruit, by the very act of reaching beyond themselves, beyond the limits set by God, by desiring to be more than human, they had lowered themselves below their humanity. They are no longer at peace with their own humanity. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. There is no magisterial teaching on this, but it is my opinion that it was a fig tree. Fig leaves right there, okay? And if you've ever had fresh figs, then you know they're tempting. By trying to reach beyond themselves, they lowered themselves. They're no longer at peace with their own humanity. That was their failure at the tree. And we, I think, find ourselves in a similar situation as regards technology. The pattern is the same. There's a promise. There's temptation by way of the eyes. There's an inordinate desire for knowledge and for power. There is a grasping beyond our limits. And there is a degradation. Of course, what I just outlined characterizes, in a sense, generally speaking, all sin. But I want to apply it to the challenges of technology. First, because our culture is so dominated by technology, which is why you all had to turn off your cell phones. Uh, it is not, it's not that technology is just an aspect of our culture, but it is really the dominant cultural force the thing that more than anything else determines what we do and unfortunately, increasingly, who we are. Technology really only observes one law. If you can do it, you ought to do it. If you can clone persons, you ought to. So first, because it's the dominant aspect of our culture. It characterizes our culture. And second, because I think the pattern of temptation and sin at the tree is more clearly seen and repeated in the realm of technology. So, let's consider the temptation of technology, the temptation, with this interpretive key of the the fall. All the elements are present. The promise, the temptation by the eyes, the desire for knowledge and power, the grasping, the resulting debasement. The promise... The serpent says, you will be like God. And in technology, the siren song is similar. We will always be able to do more. If you get this latest thing, this latest gadget, program, whatever else, you will be able to do more. You will know more. You will be able to do more. Get more done. Make more money. Be quicker about things. More in touch. More in control. That is always the promise. And the temptation comes to us more often than not by way of the eyes. As we just had this reading the other day, uh, when our Lord talking about the importance of the eyes, the eye is the lamp of the body. And if the light of the eyes is darkness, how dark will, will that darkness be? And so this temptation comes to us by way of the eyes, 
always sitting in front of a flickering screen, always trying to see, okay, what else is out there? What else can I look at? It may not concern me. It, in fact, it might be none of my business. In fact, I probably shouldn't look at it, but the eyes are drawn away. And we reach for that greater knowledge, that greater power. We reach for the ability to know and to determine everything. Everything. Not just those things that we ought to, but everything. No longer content to trust in the Lord's providing for us. No longer trusting that the tree before us is a reminder of our limitations, but wanting to control things. And then there is the fall or the degradation. We find that we are not like God at all, in fact. Um, and as a result, not even fully human. That was what Adam and Eve discovered, and we experience a similar thing when we misuse technology. The grasping for something beyond our limit, that ultimately lowers us below our dignity. And we find ourselves shackled, shackled to the very things that we that were promised would, would set us free. We think that by getting technology, then we will become more than we are, not just life, but I-life, right? And having grasped it, having it right here in our hands, we find ourselves not increased very often, but decreased. The very thing we sought to control, controls us. Adam and Eve thought they would be more than human, and they found themselves reduced to exiles. We can fall into the same trap. This is the danger. Not inevitable. Sometimes technology can be used for very good means. But it, this is the danger, not just of technology, but as I hope to show, the danger of a culture that is determined by technology, that is characterized, by, that is shaped by technology. And the drama of technology in the tree has already been played out in another field of technology, namely bioethics. In Humani Vitae, Paul VI warned about the need for observing limits. He wrote prophetically, If the mission of generating life is not to be exposed to the arbitrary will of men, one must necessarily recognize insurmountable limits to the possibility of man's domination over his body and its functions. Limits which no man, whether a private individual or one invested with authority, may licitly surpass. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, just to review, this is from the Catechism, it sinks very nicely, a technological term, it sinks very nicely uh, with what Paul VI wrote. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil symbolically evokes the insurmountable limits that man, being a creature, must freely recognize and respect with trust. Paul VI warned that if we do not recognize these limits, if we do not observe them, if we do not trust in them, then there will be no end to sort of the destruction that we bring upon ourselves. And the pattern of temptation was the same in, in bioethics. And, we, we, and unfortunately, now we see it played out very clearly. Hindsight is 2020. First, there, there was the promise. As regards contraception, it was the promise of less stress in marriages, every child being a wanted child, and so on. As regards in vitro fertilization, it was the promise of children for those who cannot conceive in the natural manner. 
And there was at play in this temptation of technology also an inordinate desire for knowledge and control. You will be like God, determining who comes to life and who does not. We wanted to know more and to be in control more. And now, as a result of this grasping for what is beyond our creatureliness, we find ourselves ruled by these very things. And it was not only the Vicar of Christ who made this observation. C.S. Lewis termed it the abolition of man, writing, in fact, well before Humana Vitae. The abolition of man. And if you have not read that book by C.S. Lewis, you have to read it. It is prophetic. And if you have read it, you need to go back and reread it. We have no respect for our limitations now as regards biotechnology. We, we quite casually manufacture, destroy, and clone human lives. Uh, I just heard the other day a story um, recounted somebody who had spoken to the women involved, two women who, well, one of whom wanted to have another child and her husband did not want to. And the other woman was, was graciously giving her some advice and saying, we should do what I do. I wanted another child. My husband didn't want another child. So I just went and found a donor and had another child that way. And once the child's there, my husband couldn't do a thing. What was once an option, and this is always the trajectory of the dictatorship of relativism, what begins as an option ends as an obligation. Contraception beginning as an option. Well, what's the harm of those who want to use this? Now, you're looked at funny if you have more than your allotted 1.8 children. Uh, sterilization, now increasingly uh, the preferred method. Uh, in the New York Times, which most people consider to be mainstream, but, um, and, and we'll, we'll just take that. Um, uh, there is a very interesting, in the online edition, a very interesting piece written by Peter Singer, um, an ethicist at, in Princeton, and the title of the article, or the column was, Should This Be the Last Generation? And he's reviewing a book by a South African philosopher named David Benatar. I don't think he's related to the singer. But um, <laughs> the book is entitled Better Never to Have Been, The Harm of Coming into Existence. <laughs> you couldn't make this up if you wanted to. What began as the option ends as the obligation. And so the whole gist of the book is that, well, as Singer summarizes it, why don't we make ourselves the last generation on earth? If we would all agree to have ourselves sterilized, then no sacrifices would be required. We could party our way into extinction. Of course, it would be impossible, and here he's very reasonable. It would, of course, it would be impossible to get agreement on universal sterilization, but just imagine that we could then is there anything wrong with this scenario? Even if we take a less pessimistic view of human existence than Benatar, we could still defend it because it makes us better off. For one thing, we can get rid of all that guilt about what we are doing to future generations. <laughs> and it doesn't make anyone worse off because there won't be anyone else to be worse off. It ends 
on a happy note. Um, he ultimately says, he says, I do think it would be wrong to choose the non-sentient universe. In my judgment, for most people, for most people, life is worth living. <laughs> for most people. This is where we are. In trying to reach beyond ourselves, we've lowered ourselves be- below our dignity. The manufacturer has become the manufactured. A couple of lines from C.S. Lewis that are worth uh, quoting. His observation uh, from the abolition of man. What we call man's power over nature turns out to be a power exercised by some men over other men with nature as its instrument. The last men, far from being the heirs of power, will be of all men most subject to the dead hand of the great planners and conditioners and will themselves exercise least power upon the future. And finally, he says, the man-molders of the new age will be armed with the powers of an omnicompetent state and an irresistible scientific technique. We shall get at last a race of conditioners who can really cut out all posterity in what shape they please. The abolition of man. Um, Another book recommendation, and I'm not getting any royalties here, a book called The Restitution of Man. And I hope I get the author's name right, by Michael Esclemon. C.S. Lewis and the Case Against Scientism. It's really a development of the abolition of man. Wonderful book. Pop culture even sees this point about technology. Even pop culture. Until recently. Uh, Hopefully everybody's read Brave New World, another prophetic book. And um, there's a fairly good movie some years ago called Gattaca. And a not fairly good movie... Uh, just the other year, called uh, Surrogates. And, um, but it was a Bruce Willis movie, so there's lots of action. So that, that made up for it. Um, but what each of these had in common, uh, Brave New World, uh, Gattaca, Surrogates, each of the, these things from kind of popular culture, what they had in common was the ultimate moral of the story, and they all involved biotechnology, but the moral of the story for each one was it is better to live an authentic human life that is flawed than to live an artificial life. That was the moral of each of those stories. Avatar is noteworthy because it abandons this moral. The moral of the story at the end of Avatar is that, well, all things considered, better not to to be human, better never to have been. That is the lesson learned from that movie. That's what is communicated. So we have seen technology in the tree at play already in the area of bioethics. But I want to focus on the technology that is more immediately present in your lives. The technology that's in your hands. Hopefully not at your ear right now. Uh, Perhaps clasped to your belt and so on. Uh, The media technology. The smartphones, PDAs, computers, iPads, and many more things than I can think of. And a clarification here is necessary. There is nothing inherently wrong with technology. The danger is to think that technology can shape everything. 
I wrote the bulk of this talk on, uh, on a laptop. And it took a memory stick and went to my desktop and wrote the rest of it. I made all arrangements uh, for it by way of email or voicemail. And most of you, I imagine, heard about it by way of email, maybe Facebook, I don't know. The use of the internet or email or texting, whatever these things, is not intrinsically evil. I'm not interested in bouncing us back to the 19th century. These things are here, uh, and they're not going away. Uh, and in this regard, sort of my analogy of technology and the trees sort of limps, because there was an absolute ban on eating anything from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But there's not an absolute ban on technology. Uh, the Holy Father just recently encouraged priests to kind of get involved in evangelizing on the Internet. And that is a dangerous uh, mission field. And another observation to make is that there's always been some reluctance about technology. We're not the only age to be suspicious. I heard somebody mention the other day that, you know, when, when Homer's works were first written down, <laughs> people were probably a little leery of that. You know, the written word? That, what will people do now? What will they memorize? The written word? Not everybody was enthused about the arrival of the train. There are accounts of people thinking, no, it's, just, it's too fast. Evelyn Waugh was, uh, I mean, he was just a grump altogether, but he was, he was particularly grumpy about the phone. There's an account of him answering, the, when he finally caved in and got a phone in his flat, he, uh, apparently he would answer it by saying, is this an emergency? If not, write a letter. <laughs> and, and Chesterton famously said when, when there was, you know, finally phone connection between the U.S. and England, he quipped that finally, you know, we have the ability to talk to one another when we have absolutely nothing to say. <laughs> so we're, this is not the first time that technology has been suspect. We don't want to fall into the trap of saying that these things are intrinsically evil. These are tools that can be very, very useful. But as long as we're in control of them and not allowing them to control us. And so the difference in our time is an entire culture that is determined by technology. Ours is not a culture that happens to have technology, but it is what people call a technological culture. Technology is the new cult that forms the culture. What happens when we allow technology to become the dominant aspect of our culture? When instead of being a tool or an instrument, it becomes the master. When instead of serving our human nature, it manipulates and degrades it. What happens when our first thought of waking up in the morning is not to turn to our loved ones, not to see how they're doing, check the internet, check the email, or whatever else. What happens when, when we begin neglecting our relationships because of the technology? Technology is the new cult that forms the culture. And this may seem extreme. Let me explain. The word culture comes from the word cult. And by cult, I don't mean like weird people standing around in robes with you know, lots of candles and doing, you know, speaking strange languages, things like that. I mean cult in the traditional uh, sense of it, worship. A culture always arises from a cult, from some form of worship. And so Islamic culture arises from Islamic worship. Buddhist culture is different because it's arising from a different kind of cult. And Christian culture different still because it's arising from a different cult. 
The technological culture, therefore, is that that is founded on the cult of technology. And it's not too much to say that there is a, a cult of technology that has arisen. Meaning, not that people bow down and worship before their iPhones and burn incense to their laptops. Um, although sometimes you wonder. Um, but in the sense that people fashion their lives around these instruments and tools instead of using the instruments and tools to serve their lives. And so technology kind of serves as a, a modern tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is a, a temptation to reach beyond what is our limit and in the very grasping to degrade, perhaps downgrade, ourselves. And so what does this look like? Let's consider some promises from the technological culture. Some of the promises are false. For example, well, just calling to mind, the serpent made a false promise. You will be like God. Well, that didn't work out. He could not deliver on that. It was a lie. The technological tree also makes false promises. The promises, for example, of greater communication and connection. Now, of course, technology does accomplish that in a certain manner. But the mistake was to think that the communication and the connection that it would bring about is the kind that satisfies the human heart. Texting, chatting, emails, Skyping, these are all stopgaps until we can achieve that real communication that we desire and that we've been created for, which is to say personal and face-to-face. -face. But what has resulted? Well, some people do use these forms of communication pretty well. And they, and, and they can control it, rather than allowing it to control them. But for many people, can we say that their communication is better? Instead of being an instrument, it has replaced the real thing. Instead of being a stopgap, until we can get that personal communication, it has substituted for the real thing. It provides a way, unfortunately, for many people to avoid relationships and to escape. I wonder how many people have been fired by way of email, you know, rather than the boss making the difficult trip down the hall and sitting and looking his employee in the eye and explaining things to him. You know, how, you know, how many of those difficult conversations are, are, are no longer had? And, and we're lesser for it because we don't develop in virtue, because we can, we can keep this barrier between us. And so what we have now, is, and we brag about it, virtual reality. It's a contradiction in terms. And it is, it is, it's a hatred for and a neglect of what we now have to call real reality. Okay. Uh, um, again, Avatar. Um, there was a, um, an article on the Avatar blues. It's not a song. It's a phenomenon on an Avatar forum website, there is a topic thread entitled, Ways to Cope with the Depression of the Dream of Pandora Being Intangible. It received more than a thousand posts from people experiencing depression and fans trying to help them cope. The topic became so popular that the forum administrator had to create a second thread so people could continue to post their confused feelings about the movie. People entered into a state of depression 
when they realized that Pandora was not a real place. It was just a planet in a movie. It wasn't real. And they were so depressed that they actually went online to talk about it. More uh, depressing and simply tragic is the story of the couple that uh, allowed their real-life baby to starve to death while they raised a virtual daughter online. The couple spent 12 hours at a night at internet cafes while their three-month-old daughter was left home alone at their apartment. So caught up in virtual reality that they had forgotten about what real reality. And another thing that this technology enables, unfortunately, is greater isolation. Notice that Adam and Eve are now divided from one another. Their nudity was not a cause of shame when God first created them. It's only when they've lowered themselves by trying to reach beyond themselves that now their, their, their nudity becomes a cause of shame. Now they're divided even within themselves. They're afraid of their bodies, ashamed of that, and now there's division between the two of them as well. There's a certain isolation that can develop. And of course, this was the opposite of what was promised. But because of our fallen human nature, we're in danger of, of using this technology to escape. Every sin is an attempt to escape. Every sin. And so we have to take seriously how much easier the technology makes it to escape, to be with the family, which is a pain in the neck. Okay, not just mine, but yours as well. Okay, um, to be with the family and not be with the family. So think of the you know the stereotype of the of the you know the, the husband years ago who would come home from work and go into the other room, turn on the TV, plop down, and just kind of get away from the family. Well, now every single family member can do that while at the dinner table. Now compare that to what many of us discovered during the snowpocalypse or the snowmageddon, whatever you, you call it. So technology has promised for us connectivity. But how many people actually discovered their neighbors for the first time? And talking to, I was talking to one guy in, in my parish who said it, it was just, it was wonderful that they, that everybody just went outside and they helped shovel one another's driveways and then they had a party. I said, listen, we've got some wine, you guys bring other things and we'll have a dinner party. And when was the last time they actually spoke to their neighbors? It probably had been a long time. But because they really couldn't go anywhere else, suddenly they were with one another. Facebook is a very interesting uh, phenomenon in this regard because it attempts to, again, put people in communication with one another and to promote connection among people. And it does that for people who use it responsibly. But the irony is that for a real relationship, you need a face. Not a virtual face, but a real one. So Facebook is, well, it's not really face, you know, it's not really FaceTime, it's virtual FaceTime, I guess. And another interesting phenomenon about that is that it eliminates the need to actually seek someone out and say, how are you? You go on Facebook to somebody's page, and they'll tell you how they are. You know, Father Scalia is talking at, at the Institute of Catholic Culture tonight, right now. Okay, I don't have a Facebook page. It doesn't say that right now. Um, <laughs> but you don't need to ask how they're doing. They're going to tell you. And so it sort of eliminates that courtesy that really should develop in human relationships.
So some promises of technology are false. Others are all too true. Uh, even the serpent's promise had some element of truth. Adam and Eve did gain something, but it was too much for them to bear. Uh, some things are too true to be good. And an example of the true promise is found in the term the information age. Now this is accurate. We have more information flying around the world at you know, greater speeds than ever before. Technology gives us loads of information. But information is not the same as understanding or as wisdom. Information is not the same as knowledge. Information is just information. It's raw data. Technology cannot provide the intellectual capacity and the intellectual virtues and the moral virtues necessary to achieve wisdom and understanding. But it is such a great promise, isn't it, that we will have all of this information at our fingertips and we are lulled into thinking that information is the end-all be-all. And so we chase information instead of reflecting deeply on, what, on the information that we do have. And so there's this kind of this cult of information. And this has sort of distorted our way of knowing. There seems to be developing a disconnect between, a disconnect of, of knowledge and the person. Really, to know something or, or, or to understand something is really to make it part of who we are, to interiorize it, to own it, as, you know, as we might say. But now, in the information age, these things, they're not necessarily read or memorized. They're not interiorized or assimilated. They're simply accessed. And so we don't have this capacity to, uh, to assimilate the information and to bring about some human understanding of what we've received. Unfortunately, the information is always something, it, it makes knowledge seem that it's something always treated as apart from us, detached, disconnected, uh, or some, simply, uh, at best, simply something that we know about. But what we're created for is a deeper kind of knowledge, a knowledge that is far more interior. Another promise that is too true to be good is efficiency. Now, again, I don't want to bounce us back to horse and buggy, okay? I liked being able to get out here. I mean, when I was in high school and we drove out here, there was nothing I mean, between here and Leesburg. So I, there are a lot more lights now. But, and I like the efficiency of being able to, to uh, have a cell phone so that when Sabatino gets really nervous that I'm not going to show up, um, uh, he can call me. But again, who's the master? Have we mastered efficiency, or has it mastered us? There was a certain efficiency to the serpent's proposal. Eat the fruit, and you will become like God. Fact is, God already desired to share his life with them, to elevate them. But as a gift, not something for them to take for themselves. So there's a certain promise of efficiency also uh, in technology. And it's not efficiency per se that's, that's the problem. It's, it's when efficiency becomes the determining f an element in our culture, when the cult of our culture is efficiency. 
Uh, I'm glad you're here, and one of the reasons you're here is because of efficiency, efficient cars, efficient communication, and things like that. But the greater part of us really, really is inefficient. The family is really inefficient. Uh, I, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm one of nine just going to Mass on Sunday, okay? Very inefficient. Um, the great works of man take time and take patience. They require a blessed inconvenience. A blessed inconvenience. One of the funniest things I encounter in marriage prep is when couples say they're going to wait some years before they have children so that they can get everything kind of settled and in order. And I say, I say why? So a child can come in and, and throw everything out of order, you know, <laughs> and unsettle everything. Uh, children are inconvenient. They're always good, always a blessing, always a gift from God, but never convenient. And their inconvenience is a great blessing because it draws us out of ourselves. And so it is with everything good that comes. I mean, think of the years, the centuries that took for Scripture to sort of ferment and age, for the stories to be handed down and then confined in Scripture, and for the great fathers of the church to meditate on these things. It wasn't they just read it and say, okay, now I've got it. It took time for them to chew on these things. Uh, there's a need for delay and time in order to have organic growth. You can't really have a civilization unless you have the patience to wait for things to develop naturally. I think we can see the technological efficiency as the rocky ground of the parable, where the seed falls and it springs up immediately but it withers for lack of roots. And this fascination uh, with efficiency, it corresponds to a temptation that the devil loves to use against us, and that is the temptation to cut corners. Wouldn't it be great to say your prayers more quickly? Okay. <laughs> Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to be moral overnight? But we can't. These things take time. And the devil is always whispering to kind of, you know, I can speed things up for you. There was something about the tree that delighted the eyes, as I mentioned earlier. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And so also with technology. It is pleasing to the eyes. Every pornographer, and that is most of the traffic online, every pornographer understands what the great Catholic artists once understood, and please God will again understand, and that is that the eyes are the way to draw someone in. And putting images in front of someone is a way of setting a hook. Every pornographer, or to be less controversial, every advertiser understands this. If I can get the image of something in front of you, get you to look at it, get your eyes to take it in, if you do not reject that image from your mind, it's there. And it will settle in to a memory. And if you don't reject the memory, it will become a desire. And if you don't reject the desire it will become an action. And if you don't repent of the action, it will become a habit. 
And if you don't repent of the habit, you become a repeat customer. Well, this corresponds to what St. Thomas calls curiositas, curiosity. Looking at things that really don't concern us. And it can be something as innocuous, perhaps, as a clothing catalog, or it can be something as dangerous as online pornography. But it has the same thing of looking at something in order to consume it with our eyes. St. Thomas contrasts curiositas with studiositas. Curiosity is the vice. Study, or perhaps contemplation we could call it, is the virtue. Instead of looking at something in order to understand it, in order to appreciate what it is, we look at it in order to consume it, to, to see what can I get from it. And so there is the phenomenon of not just looking at pornography, and unfortunately the rate of women looking at pornography is on the rise, but really looking at things with a pornographic mentality. Because what is pornography? It's looking at something that we don't have a right to look at, that doesn't concern us. And how often do we do that about innocuous things by way of technology? Two other threats that I want to point out. First, the threat of expectations, false expectations. I texted somebody this afternoon. Five minutes went by and the person hadn't texted back. Can you believe that? Right. So I was furious. Um, but we, we get into this habit of, of okay, well, you know, what, what happened? I mean, and it used to be if you called someone, remember busy signal, right? And you would just say, well, phone's busy. I'll try another time. But now we have these expectations that really, can we call them human? Or are they, are they not worthy of us? We want immediate contact. We want an immediate response. We want immediate information. And we want control. We expect to be in control. Uh, that's good when you're driving. <laughs> that's not good for the spiritual life. Spiritually, we are all control freaks. And technology can serve to really exacerbate that tendency we have, because of our fallen human nature, the tendency to want to control everything. We can't do that with God. We have to surrender ourselves to him. And another thing that technology can lead us into, if we are not the ones controlling it, is customization of our lives. And it's kind of a variation on the control. But uh, customization of our friendships. You know, what is the proper etiquette on Facebook? How do you, like, defriend someone? <laughs> how, how, how do you say to somebody, you're no longer my friend? You never were. You're just virtually my friend. But now you're not even that. <laughs> and so I have a Mac, and I have an account with mobile me. All about me. Okay, and so I go on, and it's you know a remote uh, web access, so I can check my email from wherever. But it, it kind of caters to the desire to customize everything. Several years ago, a young lady I I know uh, went off to a big state school, and she didn't have Facebook. And at first, she was sort of just rejected by everyone because what everyone else had done was they had gone to Facebook, had figured out who else on Facebook is going to this school and is living in this dorm and is similar to me. 
I will friend those people. And what that eliminated was the difficult work that most of us had to do of meeting somebody, beginning a conversation, getting five minutes into it, and thinking, oh, dear. <laughs> this person is really odd. Okay. And having to be gracious and courteous about it and learn how to deal with different people. But what this has enabled us to do is to eliminate all of that difficult work that builds up virtue. And instead, we customize our relationships. Now, everything that I've just said regarding the, the temptations of technology, they're precisely that, temptations. They're dangers. So I don't want anybody to leave thinking that I'm you know, condemning technology root and branch. But these are dangers. And they are dangers because of our fallen human nature. And if we do not recognize that, then we will be controlled by technology. Our human nature is wounded. We are inclined to look for escapes. We're inclined to run away from what is difficult. We're inclined to that customization instead of learning you know, to uh, know people who are different than, than we are. They are dangers and temptations. But they're dangers and temptations that many people are falling into. And any priest can tell you just what a danger the internet is. Any priest who hears confessions on a regular basis knows this. How much danger comes about. And not just the porn, but uh, just other just relationships that have gone astray because of it. So I do not intend this as just a rant against technology. I, I'm, I'm not a Luddite, all indications to the contrary notwithstanding. <laughs> Because the tree was not a bad thing. It was good. It was a reminder of their limits and ours. And so what we need to call to mind, again, is our limits. And so reflecting on what I call technology in the tree can help us to acknowledge again our limits and say, well, you know, maybe I just, I, I need to limit my time using email, or when I go online, or how I treat people. There is one, one cleric I know who, he, extraordinarily busy, whenever he sends me an email, it is with a date, Dear Paul, greetings in Christ Jesus. And then he goes, and several, it's, it's a letter, just an email form. And I feel guilty every time because I just zap him back. It's something like yes or no. Okay. okay. Um, so it's a, it's a time to examine our conscience and say, okay, well, how am I using this? Am I using this to be more human? Or am I allowing it to draw me down? Am I using this really to foster relationships and to look forward to that time where I can really look on someone face to face? Or am I, am I using it to avoid precisely that. The tree was, in fact, original, an original blessing, a reminder of the limits. We need to call those to mind again. And it, what it demands from us is that we allow God to be in control. I'd like to end with two things. I've referred to the cult of technology. How do we resist that? Well, by cultivating the proper cult, the mass, sort of liturgical healing, if you will, 
we need to fall in love with the liturgy and the liturgy done well, you know, where uh, what is the desire that the liturgy expresses to see God face to face? What does the liturgy require of us? Patience. What is the liturgy? Inconvenient. <laughs> and it's tactile. It is there. It is, it's not something that just rushes in and out. You can't streamline it. You can't just have a live feed. You, no, that's not attending Mass, although if you're homebound, it's a good substitute. No, it's got to be there to touch, to have that encounter with the Lord. That is what makes us more human. So we need to restore the proper cult in private prayer as well. Going before our Lord and say, Lord, let me see your face. And showing him our face as well. The very thing that technology promises but can't accomplish. That face-to-face encounter. And those of you who know me knew that you weren't going to get away without a Chesterton quote. Another one. This, in this case, a poem. So he's writing in the 1890s, a time already where technology is on everybody's mind. And he writes, this is entitled, A Blessing. I live in an age of varied powers and knowledge, of steam, science, democracy, journalism, art. But when my love rises like a sea, I have to go back to an obscure tribe and a slain man to formulate a blessing. Our Lord, an obscure man, a slain man, he brings to us from that obscurity, from his incarnation, he brings to us that blessing that technology cannot achieve. And by asking that blessing, we should include in that petition the grace to use this technology always for his glory and for our good. Thank you. Thank you, Father. Just, I hate to conclude his, his talk in this way, but we do have uh, a CD of Father Scalia's <laughs> in the back on moral relativism. And to, to make it even worse, don't forget to sign up on our email newsletter in the back. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.